You're listening to For the Record, a registrar podcast. I'm Michelle Weller, Associate Registrar at New York Law School. And I'm Chris Huang, Director of Institutional Effectiveness and Registrar at the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. And this is Connect, Educate, and Advocate with the Asian, American, and Pacific Islander Caucus. Hello, and welcome to another episode of For the Record, a Registrar podcast sponsored by ACRO. I'm your host, Doug McKenna, and today we're going to talk to members of the Asian American and Pacific Islander Caucus. And I want to say right from the beginning that I have been horrified by the increase in anti-Asian rhetoric and violence that's been happening in the United States, and that it is not up to our Asian American colleagues to solve that issue. It's up to all of us, and by us, I especially mean white people, to call out racist and hateful language and put an end to this Asian hate in particular. So on that note, Chris, Michelle... Thanks for joining me today. I appreciate you taking the time to chat with me. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks Thank for you, having Doug. us. Michelle, give us a quick introduction of yourself, where you work, what you do, and a little bit about your institution as well. Hi, I'm Michelle Weller. I'm the Associate Registrar and Director of Academic Operations at New York Law School. We are a standalone law school, not affiliated with a large university, but we love our our campus, our, our campus family, uh, we've got a very strong strategic plan that really highlights uh, and puts at the forefront issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion, and we're really proud of that. Nice. Thanks for being here. Chris. Uh, yes, I'm Chris Huang. I'm the Director of Institutional Effectiveness and Registrar at the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago which is in Hyde Park. We're right across the street from the University of Chicago. And uh, we are a seminary uh, that is affiliated with the uh, ELCA, the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America. And I'm glad to be here. Fantastic. Thanks for joining us. So let's start off with the caucus. Um, You're both members of the Asian American and Pacific Islander Caucus, the AAPI. How did you get involved with the caucus? What types of work do you do with the caucus? And then more broadly, what types of work is the caucus itself engaged in? Michelle, do you want to go first? (laughs) Sure. Um, I only got involved more recently with the AAPI caucus, and I uh, have found it a safe space to talk with my my colleagues from uh, around the nation and just to to be seen. initially, and then next to, to advocate for not only our students, but for our, uh, our fellow colleagues uh, that identify as AAPI. And it's a, it's a great group, very friendly, very welcoming, and we're always open to more membership and uh, new programming. Yeah, and um, I've been involved with the caucus, I think, since 2016, so fairly new. Uh, to it as well. Um, it was just at an acro meeting where I, I didn't have anything in my schedule and I saw the Asian and Pacific Islander Caucus meeting and I just went in. Uh, one of my colleagues when I was at Governor State University was the chair of the Black Caucus and uh, had encouraged me to just think about trying to get involved in the, in the caucus meeting. And um, at, 
actually at that time, I think there was a change in leadership in the caucus. And so we were um, at that meeting, we had members of the board to come and talk to us about, we need people to step into um, a chair role and also a vice chair role. And one person had said, yeah, they'll do the chair. And I said, I'll be the vice chair. <laughs> Not really knowing <laughs> uh, what, 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 what that was all involved with that. So, um, uh, so that's kind of how I've been involved. Uh, I've, I was past, I'm currently past chair, having served as a chair of the caucus for a, a few years. And I think part of the goal was just to let people know that we exist and how they can communicate, how they can connect with us and just communicating um, and being a resource for them to support Asians in higher education. And um, I think now that we've gotten, I don't know, we're a small but mighty caucus, I guess now that we've gotten some, uh, let's get our feet wet a little bit, we're starting to, I think, look at how can we, um, what role do we want to play within the association? Because I think there's some latitude in terms of what a caucus can can do. It could be just kind of communal, but yep. I think um, that's definitely one part of it. But I think the other part that we're trying to do is how can we educate and now advocate for people and support our students that are at our institutions. That's great. I appreciate it. I do think that one of the things that we need to do a better job of with ACRO is letting people know that there are caucuses and that a caucus is really, as Michelle pointed out, a safe space to talk with people of similar mindset, a similar life experience, a similar background. And so if you, the listener, uh, are interested in checking out all of the various caucuses, and there are many, you can check them out on the ACRO website. And I will put a link to the caucuses page in the show notes for this episode. So, Chris and Michelle, you both mentioned sort of the community aspect of the caucus. More specifically, what types of engagement are there that build that sense of community for you as as a member of the caucus? Well, I mean, one of the things uh, that I think ACRO has been helpful, especially in light of the, the pandemic that we're in, is just hosting the monthly gatherings for caucus meetings. Um, we appreciate having a Zoom platform that we can uh, use and connect and just check in, you know, on a monthly basis. And I mean, there's no, it's not a requirement that you have to, to be there, but just having that platform, because uh, without that, I think we were kind of left to each individual institution or whatever uh, resources that we all had individually at our institutions to be able to meet either, you know, through Google, if we needed to a Google meet or, um, you know, uh, different, like a Skype, if that's, that was at a previous institution, you know, so I, I appreciate the resources in that way. Um, and then I would say just um, staying in connection. We have a LinkedIn page as well, um, a caucus page where we can share what's going on. And there's always good old fashioned email, uh, just checking <laughs> in and maintaining our um, old our, school. You know, yeah. <laughs> so those are some ways that I think that we, 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 we commune. And obviously, I think just um, when we're in person, just being able to see, you know, people visually, you can just tell, yeah, okay, um, and have that kind of affinity and um, just checking in that way. Those are some ways that, yeah. um, that I think that people can connect with us. Well, I think it seems like a uh, deceptively simple thing to communicate with others, but it's kind of hard to do, especially if you're a registrar and you've got a million and one things to do and you're wearing a million and one hats. Perhaps 
staying in contact with your affiliation group or even your friends is a difficult thing, even if you're your family. Yeah. So it was important to me to know that Acro made it important to put something on my calendar. If something's on my calendar, it's important enough to for me to make time for it. And just by merit of that 15-minute reminder, oh, I have to get together with my AAPI colleagues. Let me put away everything else and focus on this. And it forced me to think about, you know, the national news instead of worrying about um, student registration at the time. For me, scheduling time for for this was was part of my self care, and I didn't know I needed it until it was there on my calendar. That's such an in, important point about self care and making sure that we carve out time for ourselves. And yes, you don't know you need it. And then you do it and you're like, yeah, I needed that. (laughs) I don't know how to jump into this gracefully, but let's talk about what's going on in the country right now. It's been a rough four plus years and there has been a, a dramatic increase in the rise of racially motivated attacks, uh, some of them with physical violence, some of them deadly. I don't know if either of you want to just comment on what's going on or if you can share the sentiment of your communities. I don't know that people who are listening to this podcast wouldn't also be following the national news, but just in case someone's getting their national news from this podcast – Can you talk a little bit about what's been happening and how what's been happening has affected your communities? Well, it's hard to say. Whenever you see any senseless murder on the national news, that's disheartening. When you see somebody that looks like a family member or has a similar name to a a close friend or your uh, community group, that doesn't just strike an emotional chord, but it it brings back not just the last four years of experiences, but your your parents' experiences, the the people who immigrated. Uh, I'm I am I guess one point five generation, and it, it makes me. Even though um, I am not of Korean background, there's a sense of kinship with the between the Filipino and the Korean communities. And I'm not going to assume that my experiences are the, are the same as theirs right now, but the general anti-Asian sentiment that was felt specifically in the last year and a half because of certain leaders calling the virus the Chinese virus, that it doesn't make me hurt Personally, it makes me hurt for my parents. It makes me hurt for the entire community. And I think I'm still at that point of pain. I'm not at the point of anger, which some of my colleagues are at that point. And then from there, hopefully to a sense of solidarity and advocacy. So that's where I'm at right now. Thank you for sharing that, Michelle. Yeah, thank you, Michelle. And um I think one of the things too that we wrestle with as a caucus is that 
the Asian American community consists of 40 different race and ethnicities, you know. So it's a, even within kind of like a caucus, there's a lot of people groups with it that represent that. Uh, myself being a Taiwanese uh, American, um, I, I probably feel a bit closer to uh, to I guess some of the the, the rise in anti um, Asian hate for for exactly kind of what uh, Michelle has already said. But you know I think there's a mixture of different feelings, right? There's probably a lot of fear out there when you see media coverage. Uh, and the violence, yeah. I mean, the initial part is, hey, I, I don't want to go out there just in case something happens to me. And we know that there's been more on the coast, right, that's been happening more in the Bay Area and, like, New York City, uh, from what I can tell on, on media. I live in the Midwest um, and actually Northwest Indiana. And, I mean, I guess, thankfully, it hasn't been as overt of violence. But I guess, you, I guess in the back of my mind sometimes, you know, when you do have media coverage, you know, does that also increase the likelihood that violence may occur? And I think it's not so much like people in my generation is like more concerned for their their parents or their grandparents because they're more vulnerable, you know, and that's where at least the coverage I've seen has been more on, you know, fear for not wanting or checking in with their, their parents or grandparents because they're, I guess they're more vulnerable if they're just walking down the street and seeing those videos. And so... There's a lot of different, I think, emotions uh, that are that are there. I personally would just say that I think with the change in leadership at the federal level, um, the tone has definitely changed, which I think we greatly appreciate the support, especially, you know, having um, Vice President uh, Kamala Harris, uh, who, you know, identifies as South Asian and also Black. Um, so you have different communities probably wanting to claim her and that type of stuff. <laughs> but, I, but I think just having that voice to the president's ear, you know, will, will help maybe pacify or help people think before they act um, and really trying to unify the country in, in a certain certain way. But mm-hmm. I mean, as, as a caucus though, we, we realize that Asian American uh, or violence against Asian Americans is, is not anything new to the, to the country's history. And I think as, sadly as caucus, that is true. You know, we've, we, we identify that it's just, you know, it's just, I think it's just been escalated just given recent events. Given that and focusing now on our local institutions, what are the ways that, I don't want to split this into two things really. One is a focus on our students and another is a focus on our faculty and staff. I think that the groups may need similar things, but I think they also are different enough that it's worth talking about uh, separately. What are ways that we as higher ed professionals can help our students who may be experiencing that anger, fear, uh, anxiety, those types of the full range and spectrum of emotions? What are things that we at our institutions can do for them right now? Uh, obviously, I think an easy way would be just to you know check in with them uh, through email or reach out and just kind of do like a well wellness check right with them and just seeing how they're how they're feeling um, and just trying to listen. And sometimes there could be just awkward silence because I think we're all kind of processing this and there's just some reflection there. And I, I found this in a USA Today article 
and this is kind of what uh, a person had shared and I, I kind of like it. So I just want to share with you. It's like, uh, she writes, um, don't just ask, how are you feeling? You know, is there anything I can do for you? Uh, Cause this puts the onus on them being the student, um, this consultant, her name is Kim Tran suggests saying something more like, I know this news is stressful. Can I help you with anything like school wise or work wise? Obviously I think it's, it's great. I've seen a lot of institutions and, my institution included, you know, release a statement um, condemning the violence. And so I think sharing that with them and knowing that, that we are, you are, you're an advocate and an ally for them. Another faculty member I saw on Facebook had posted, hey, if you need someone to walk with, just let me know. I'll be happy to walk with you. Because um, you don't know where people are at right now. Like some people, like we've said before, some people are just angry. Some people are really fearful. Um, some people are maybe more concerned about their parents because they might be separated from them right now. So I think just um, just knowing that people are there and reaching out is a good support for for the students. I completely agree about checking in and letting the students have that just the time for silence and then the time to process and being open to receiving their responses and being surprised by their responses, not right away, but even later, maybe even a week later or a year later, because this may come back. Uh, when the media is no longer paying attention to it, it still will have long-lasting effects. I think what we try to do with our students is let them lead because they will be the leaders. So they're not going to be helped as much by, um, yes, they will be helped by statements of solidarity by the administration, but I think they'll be helped more by feeling that their voice is heard and that they can they can have some action in unifying themselves as a student group. So I think sometimes what happens with administrations is a statement is made, a couple of events are planned, perhaps the students are not involved in the planning of those because they want to get something out there very quickly. Right. But it's really, really important that the students on the grassroots level, if you want to speak of it that way, they're the ones that are served and they're the ones planning because that's going to be more cathartic for them. I think that makes sense. And that's one of those sentiments I think that's used in disability advocacy. Nothing about us without us is the phrase that's used. And I think that that's one of those things that we should incorporate into all of our practices uh, especially as we we as higher ed professionals make decisions that affect students' lives more broadly, but especially in these situations where it's important for the students to have a voice in this and asking for their input is one of those starting points to getting them involved. So that's a great point to keep in mind. I think that higher education is a vocation. And so I, I feel like every day I'm a registrar, I'm doing social justice work because of what I feel is the power of higher education to change individual lives and by extension to change the world. I'm interested in your perspectives on that approach to our work. Does that resonate with you? Do you feel the same way? Are there things that you would add to that? Or how does that manifest itself for you in your work? 
Oh, I completely think we're changing the world. We're superstars. We're superheroes. <laughs> <laughs> Thank like you. From, yes. uh, we just, uh, without that transcript, they can't go on and be, you know, the world leaders that w- they will be in the future. You know, if we don't accept them into our institution, that's, you know, that's a leg up. I think one of the reasons why my parents brought us into the United States was for that American dream of you're going to go to a good school, you're going to go to college, you're going to be a doctor or, or a lawyer. Um, I disappointed them with that, but I work at a law school, so that's one thing. <laughs> you're but I, lawyer, lawyer adjacent. <laughs> yeah, but but it's great when we when we can specifically support underrepresented populations. And even though I'm not specifically in that admissions role, I'm part of somehow not completely changing the system, but every every piece of the machine adjusts and hopefully lends to that that arc of justice that we sometimes refer to. Yeah. Every little bit, every person can can help. Yeah. And and Doug, thank you for sharing, you know, kind of how you, you view your vocation. And I mean, I, I agree with that sentiment. And I think uh, it's it's about access and inclusion and diversity, right? And, you know, sending about uh, that with a degree can change, obviously, someone's life you know, for the better. I think sometimes some of the things I've been thinking about, too, just through reading different books and so forth, is also just the systemic racism. You know, for those that are in power tend to be, you know, Caucasian people, and so, you know, do we? Is there a glass ceiling uh, that that our our Asian community may head up against, uh, regardless of whatever career or vacation they're in? I, I like the the hopefulness and stuff like that, but I'm also kind of at least balancing out too, kind of with some realities that I've just been thinking about, even in my own like kind of career journey, so to speak. You know, is there a ceiling that I I will hit? Because I think one of the things we've talked about, even at like Acro Leadership, is just the a lack of Asian Pacific Islanders in like kind of higher up positions at the VP presidential level. And why is that? So those are, those are conversations to have too, but I, you know, all, I think one of the things that you can do just change one life at a time and uh, empower them to go and hopefully change the world. Yeah. One of the things that I think about with sort of the representation piece is that this is not a problem for the AAPI caucus to solve. This is not a problem for the black caucus to solve. This is an issue that white people have to address. I think we've said it a couple of times in previous episodes, and it's the focus of one of the plenary sessions at the ACRO annual meeting. Like, It's not enough to not be racist. There's enough racism in the world and a, a history of systemic racism that even if you're not racist, it, but you're continuing to exist and benefit from a racist system, you might as well be racist. And so understanding that just not being racist is not enough anymore, and it was never, but here we are, and so we can't go back, we got to go forward. You got to be anti-racist, and we have to be willing to engage in these conversations to and take a, a good strong, healthy look at who our leaders are and how they got there. And are they representative of 
the people? Are they, have we given an opportunity to everyone in an equal way? And the answer to those things right now is no, we haven't. But making people aware that that's an issue, I think is the first step, is one of the first steps. And then the sort of long-term follow-through. Systemic racism is also not something that we're going to be able to turn a light switch off and just be like, hey, it's over. Great job, everyone. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. how in your day-to-day work are you looking at the longer-term sort of paradigmatic shifts for higher education, for society in the United States, and globally, really, how are you able to plan for and engage in this work with the hope of long-term change? What, what types of things are you doing in order to enable that? As with any crisis, the media or our short-term minds are going to focus on them for the next year. And a year from now, something else is going to happen. Are we going to forget about what happened last year? And I think the only way to keep what's important to us on everybody's mind is to put it in kind of like Acro puts the caucus on the calendar. Yeah. Every institution can do it differently. They they need to come back, maybe do an anniversary, do a uh, put it in your strategic plan, uh, have a campus uh, climate assessment every year, every two years so that it doesn't become reactive, it becomes proactive, so that we're not just addressing crisis situations where we're trying to provide counseling to students, but we're, we're checking in on a regular basis. We're checking in with our staff or our faculty on a regular basis so that the climate is one of empathy and inclusivity so that if anyone has a concern, they don't feel like they have to wait until something big happens to build up all the the pent-up frustrations of the year. Right. Yeah. Sorry, Doug, your, your question was a loaded question. <laughs> <I'm still> processing. <laughs> That's um, what I'm here for. You know, like, you know, like what's your five-year plan? <laughs> yeah. And a strategic plan. And that's great to think about too. Um, I guess I would say uh, what I've seen at my institution is um, kind of, you know, uh, we want to, and even in our mission statement or our strategic plan, you know, form, there's been um, task forces. Uh, there's a, a goal to be an anti-racist institution. You know, some places I've seen, they have diver- uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion officers that do training. Um, I've definitely been appreciative of like ACRO's partnership in, in using the, um, it's actually next month, I think, uh, the Asian Pacific Islander Heritage Month to be able to do programming in that way. But on a more like, I guess, individual level, I think it just really starts with a conversation with someone who maybe doesn't look like you or, or someone, if you don't have anybody in your like community or in your group that you say, hey, I, I know a, a Chinese person or a person of Asian American descent, right? And I think sometimes just this having a conversation, finding that common ground is a starter point um, because I think uh, as a people, we kind of naturally, if we don't know someone, we kind of fear them, right? And I think, at least from my perspective, once you have kind of a personal connection to someone, that hopefully would change how you view the world in terms of what you see and 
it's it, it obviously doesn't happen overnight. Uh, one of the things that I've been challenged with just in my myself with uh, one of the person I've been following is Jamar Tisby, where he talked about, you know, people might say, oh, yeah, I have, I have friends who are black or African-American. And his challenge was you might want to check with your black African-American friends to see if they view you the same way. And I mean, I appreciate your your perspective, too, that, you know, this openness and and willingness. I, I, I wish everybody in America who was of a Caucasian background had that type of mindset, but I don't think the reality is that that's the case. And, um, you know, I think one of the things that, that as we think about Kendi's book about the policies, right? And so who's in charge of the policies as we think about anti-racism and processing that and who, who's invited to speak into those policies to be able to really effectuate some type of change. So, I mean, I, I think kind of to Michelle's point, having a constant, consistent, sustainable strategy is helpful um, at the institutional level, but I think also just relationship, having those relationships, keeping those, and I'm checking that, I guess, checking in with people. Sometimes the annual meeting can provide that for us, right, as an association to be able to do those type of things. So uh, I think those are the ones that will kind of help build some of that sustainability. You mentioned uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives and programming. I want to ask specifically about study abroad and how you view the value of study abroad. And then second, and maybe more specifically, name pronunciation workshops for faculty staff. We've done a lot now with preferred name. My first name is Charles. I go by Doug. So my preferred name in all of my, all of my student systems is Doug. Mm-hmm. Um, but we have a lot of international students who will take an Americanized name Uh, Right now, we have a first name, preferred name, and then I have seen, heard, and been witness to staff and faculty struggle with uh, students' last names. And so what do you think about or how do you assess name pronunciation workshops? Are they helpful? I think any steps we can take to cater to a student's preference or a staff member's preference or a faculty member's preference is to ask them, even if you don't have a workshop, the workshop may not be perfect. The person who is there in front of you, the student, the staff member who's there in front of you is going to be the the expert of how they want to be perceived. And in that case, it's a one-on-one workshop right there. There you go. You but don't have person, to spend money on a, a exactly. workshop. <laughs> the person who's saying the name has to be willing to be taught and has to be receptive to pronouncing the name correctly. And so I think that's you know one of the things that we need to work on is uh, with both our faculty and staff to be more open to being corrected, uh, to be more yeah. open to learning how to say someone's name. It's someone's name. They ought to be able to say it correctly. And, mm-hmm. and the student or the faculty or the staff deserves to have their name said correctly. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that's a, yeah. just one of those foundational things. Right. I, I've not been part of any type of workshops. I didn't even know that there were those type of workshops. So this is uh, new, new information, which is great. And I, I agree with what Michelle said. It's like, as long as there's an opportunity, that sounds great. And th- I know that there's, I think, software that's available to, like, name coach um, that's supposed to help. You know, people can record their name, how to say it. But I think the other part, too, is like sometimes I think 
I'll, I'll speak for myself. Um, I was born in Taiwan, so I didn't have an American name growing up. I just went by my Chinese name. And but obviously, I think going through that experience, I became Chris because that was, that was my that's kind of my American name, and I mean that's what I go by. Um, but I think sometimes, whether students or um, faculty or staff, sometimes I think they feel that pressure uh, or that awkwardness, right? Having their name mispronounced, that they's like, okay, I'll just make it easier. I'll just go with an American name, and uh, like my Chinese name is uh, Yao Chang. And people might not know how to say that, right? So like Chris is a lot easier. So I think just letting him know that it's okay, and it's I guess it's a sensitive thing too, because sometimes like my name's been mispronounced loads of times, so it's spelled H-U-A-N-G, but it's pronounced Huang, and it gets Huang is is often, but part of my culture I guess is that I don't want to trying to save face for the person that I'm working with, so I don't want to make like oh I'm sorry you like you mispronounced my name, and so it's it's kind of like a, a double-edged sword sort of thing because. You know, we, we don't want to put them on the spot to be like, look, you totally butchered my last name. But at the same time, if we don't correct them, you know, they don't know, right? So I think those efforts are, are good. It might be better on an individual basis than like a group workshop. And I mean, but I don't have that type of background. And maybe people do who you know, have studied linguistics or other stuff. Um, so I, I agree that uh, it's good to try. Um, I, I would just hate that if we may potentially go badly somehow and it's just it's a bad experience for everybody um you, you had asked too about study abroad i kind of agree the same, the same way uh, my wife uh, i mean she's she's caucasian but she went to china as part of our in, uh, intro man our undergrad and i think it was just eye-opening for her to be in that experience because it was reversed there was tons of uh you know chinese people around and she was in the minority at that point right and i think that experience not necessarily relates to how how I feel as a as a as a Asian American growing up in a predominantly white society here, but I think that experience helped her understand a little bit more about my background and maybe some of my feelings or maybe why I react certain ways when I see things. Um, so anything that broadens your horizon outside of our own little world, I think can give you that global like hey, there's so the world is as technology has definitely crossed and brought the world smaller. But I think what we miss sometimes in terms of study abroad is the experiences and that personal connection. Because once you have that personal connection with with either a culture or with a person, that alone hopefully will change your views or thoughts. Um, but if you still have, but it's you know those things that you have to unlearn over time. Yeah. Um, it doesn't automatically like a one shot. Hey, you know, I, I think sometimes uh, as as we read in a cast book, I think sometimes America feels like oh we. Because Barack Obama was elected president of the US, that yeah, we we're in a post-racial society. Yeah, well done, everyone. Anymore. Here we go. We have a, you know a black president. That's that's ludicrous, right? But anyway, back to your original point. I think anything to try to help uh, diversify one's perspective is, is a good experience and helpful. Well, as we draw near to the end of our time together for chatting today, I do want to. Thank you both for your time and your perspectives. And I also want to offer a word of support from the ACRO community broadly, um, from me specifically, that we see you and we care about you and you're an important part of our community. And we are interested in doing everything that we can in order to both make sure that you are safe 
but also that you feel safe and that you feel uh, comfortable and welcome and part of the acro community, but part of American society. It's 2021. We should be able to get along and recognize each other's differences and see the strength in those differences rather than feel threatened by them. And so I just want to say thank you for being here. And if you have any closing thoughts or words of advice or encouragement for people in your community, feel free. Thank you, Doug. And thank you, Acro, for giving us this platform to be able to share a little bit of our experiences and, and for your support. And I just, I just want to give a little bit of a plug for some of our things that we're doing with our caucus. Absolutely. Um, Now that we kind of are for a while under my leadership, we were just kind of trying to let people know where we exist, right. And how to connect with us. And I think we're starting to get our feet under us. Like I said before, like our tagline, so to speak of our caucus is connect, educate and advocate. And so you connect with us uh, to learn to support each other, but also it's open for people who are not of uh, Asian American Pacific Islander descent, who just might have an interest in it. It is an open caucus. We welcome anybody who has an interest in, in things Asian American or Pacific Islander. One of the things I've really appreciated is uh, Faduma on the ACRO staff, who really kind of helped build out our page. If you go to our caucus page, which I know you, you'll give a link to um, yep. uh, later on, but it, there's a lot of resources uh, that are there. So it causes um, to, you know, for, for myself, I signed up to, to take an online bystander training through the Asian American Advancing Justice in Chicago, and it's free. There's, there's resources there for support uh, for Asian Americans. And um, so I encourage people to check out that website. And again, just thank you for the, for the support and we appreciate it. Right on. Michelle, any closing thoughts? No, I want to thank, uh, thank you, Doug and Chris and Acro. Um, the whole, the whole Acro family has been uh, a welcome saving grace in this time. Um, a way to stay involved professionally, but also feel like it was a personal connection with my colleagues. Um, I'm really glad that I can learn more from the stories of others and humble myself by knowing that the more I know, the less I know. And that kind of makes me feel better somehow. And it's uncomfortable having these conversations sometimes. It forces me to look deep within myself where I didn't want to because progress isn't linear. We keep coming back to the same old problems. Right. But I, I do still have hope uh, because of uh, these community groups, these affinity groups, um, that we can continue supporting each other, um, advocating for you know our our students, our staff, even the research, because without the research, we can't prove anything. And, But also beyond the research, just to believe each other because we are here for each other. So thank you. You bet. Thanks to both of you. Coming up, the ACRO annual meeting starts on Monday, March 29th. It's the first fully virtual ACRO annual meeting ever. And I hope you'll be able to participate. There are tons of ways to get involved with ACRO. We need people to serve on committees, to submit articles for publications, to propose sessions for conferences, and to participate in caucuses. Don't be shy. Wherever you are in your career, there's room for your skills and expertise with ACRO 
or with the state and regional associations. Thanks very much for listening. Thanks again to Chris and Michelle for sharing their experiences and for being vulnerable. I challenge you to find ways to make your institution a more inclusive place. Registrar and admissions work is social justice work. Let's make it count and let's take care of each other. I think I said it already, but thanks for listening. I think you're swell. Take good care, keep wearing those masks, get vaccinated as soon as you can, and hopefully, hopefully, we'll see each other in person sometime soon. I'm Doug McKenna, and this is For the Record.